when you abandon the rule of law as a democracy, your democracy is gone. And it's going to be gone before most people realize it's going to be gone if we can't turn this around. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Howard Dean served as governor of Vermont from 1991 to 2003. He ran for president in 2004 and then served as chair of the Democratic National Committee from 2005 to 2009. In the years since, he's worked as a political consultant and commentator. He joined us from his home in Vermont. Governor Howard Dean, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me on. What do you feel is at stake in the 2020 election? Uh, in the national election, the, what's at stake is the rule of law in the United States of America. Uh, I mean, what's going on is just shocking. The attorney general is nothing but a, a basically a, a lawyer for a criminal who's the president of the United States. Um, we have a justice, depart- a justice system that's collapsing because of the chicanery of the Federalist Society. Uh, we're in really serious trouble. And I don't think people, many people realize just how serious this trouble is. When you abandon the rule of law as a democracy, your democracy is gone. And it's going to be gone before most people realize it's going to be gone if we can't turn this around. Are you surprised at how quickly this has unraveled? I mean, I'm not. I'm sorry to say, I wish I were surprised, David, but I'm not. Because the Republican Party, Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, said it the other day, uh, democracy is not our goal. We, we don't care about democracy. We care about prosperity and liberty. They truly do not care about I told I told Obama about this. When he was coming, he, when I was, I was the referee between Hillary and Obama in 2008. And when Obama won, he came to see me because I was the head of the DNC, not just sort of the ceremonial turning over the, of the keys. And uh, he said, well, I've come through the worst of this. Beating Hillary was much harder than beating McCain. And I just looked at him and I said, if you think that, you'd better think again. These people are ruthless. They don't care about the country and they're going to run you over if they can, which is exactly what they did. So, um, I, you know, I think that Republicans have become, have turned into something that is terribly, terribly bad about the country. And I don't think that's true of most of the Vermont Republicans, although there are some. And I certainly wouldn't put... Phil Scott, or for that matter, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts in that category. But most of the Republican Party have become uh, corrupt uh, hands of authoritarians, and Trump is the ultimate authoritarian. And he's good at manipulating people who have weak spines, and the Republicans have weak spines. They won't stand up to him. How are you feeling about Biden's chances? I think right now the chances are good. Well, look, we're going to get more votes. The question is, how much cheating will the Republicans do? Yesterday in Georgia, you saw 11 hour lines for early voting. That means, and, and that's in black districts. And, and there are already, all, always much longer lines in black districts than there are in white districts, particularly in areas of the country where the vote's been suppressed. Now the governor of Georgia got where he got by suppressing the votes because he also happened to run the election that he ran in as governor. Um, this, you know, this stuff, you can't make this stuff up. Look, I do a lot of work internationally and I spent a lot of time in former Soviet republics we are degenerating very quickly because of the mentality of the Republican Party. And what's pro- pro- going to happen if we're not careful is the Democrats will adopt the same mentality because it's the only way we can survive. We have to do better than that. We can't allow that to happen. We have to win and then we have to f- drive the corruption out. We have to reinstall Citizens United. We have to completely change the way we choose the Supreme Court so there's no partisan ability to, to do that. 
Um, our institutions are in the worst trouble they've, I've, I've seen in my lifetime, probably going back to the Civil War. Democrats are often accused of bringing a knife to a gunfight when it comes to dealing with Republicans. Do you think that's true? Is that I fair? Do. I think it's true. It's true for a good reason. Uh, we actually would like to govern. It's why Democrats do a better job. You know, the largest deficits in the history of this country have been, have been created by the last four Republican presidents, Reagan, both Bushes, and now Trump. And yet the Re Republicans claim they're the anti-spending party. They spend lots. They just spend it on their friends who are already billionaires. We can do better than that, and we should do better than that, but we have to be tougher. Uh, we can't, what we, the problem is you can't confuse toughness with abandoning your principle. You have to keep your principles, but you have to be tough as nails with these people. These people mean harm to America, and we've got to be just as tough as they are, but then we have to stay principled. Okay, so let's fast forward to the current moment. We're, we're going through a Supreme Court uh, appointment hearing now. So with the likely appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, we're now facing the prospect of the most conservative Supreme Court since the 1930s. And with the young age of Trump's appointees, Kavanaugh, Barrett, uh, Gorsuch, uh, the, the, the court may stay this way for decades. Should a President Biden, if he's elected, expand the Supreme Court? I, what I would say, he should unpack the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has been packed for 30 years by the Federalist Society, which is run on dark money from large corporations and, and billionaires who don't have to say who they're giving the money to or where it's going. Uh, it, is, it, it has corrupted the court. We need to unpack the Supreme Court. We need to get all the unqualified people off of there. Now you can't, and, and, and the judicial system in general. So I don't come at this where we should add justices to the Supreme Court. The constitution permits, does not permit you to rotate judges off the Supreme Court uh, into, uh, into retirement, but it does permit you to rotate justices off the Supreme Court onto the uh, circuit courts or the appeals courts. That should be done. There should be term limited to the Supreme Court's justice. Furthermore, we ought to use the Vermont system for picking judges instead of this farce that's going on uh, nationally and that resulted in the Republican packing of the court. Uh, the way it should be done is you should have a committee as we do in Vermont, where, for example, uh, both chairs of the Judiciary Committee, whether they're houses in the House and the Senate, whether they're Democrats or not, uh, the head of the Bar Association, and a number of other statutory people, and people who are picked by both the minority and the majority to serve on a committee, which then gives the president a vetted series of people he can choose from or she can choose from. The, the Constitution says the president appoints. It does not say the president can appoint any unqualified fool that's vetted by the Federalist Society for uh, political correctness. So let me make sure I understand you. You're saying you can rotate justices into the federal court system, but that, that is not currently allowed for Supreme Court justice. You can't Certainly force it. It's constitutional. It? Yeah, sure. There's nothing to prevent you from doing it. It's just never been done. A the court has been expanded before. A pre yes, but a pre you're saying a president could remove or force a Supreme Court justice into another federal court. That is correct. What the Constitution says is that appointments to the federal bench are for life, barring bad behavior. So leaving the bad behavior question aside, which we can debate, uh, there is nothing in the Constitution that prevents rotating judges once they've been appointed to the court onto other federal courts. So why has it never been done? Uh, that's a very good question. I don't know. 
I mean, I suspect the Supreme Court, the partisan Supreme Court would have a different interpretation, but that the Constitution no, in no way forbids that from happening. It does forbid you from throwing a judge off the, Supreme, uh, off the Supreme Court or any other federal court without justification, by, with, which would mean criminal behavior. And there have been judges that have been impeached and removed for that, although to my knowledge, uh, yeah, I think there's even been a couple of Supreme Court justices that ha- that's happened to in the very, very distant past. So why is nobody raising this idea? It's a novel idea to me. The- they have. They have. It just hasn't gotten much media attention. Hmm. Um, where do you stand on the Electoral College? We, we have now the picture of a country that is largely lapsed into minority rule, where southern states are given outsized influence. Um, what do you think should happen there? I think it should be eliminated. Now, you're not going to get that done constitutionally. The Electoral College was, uh, was invented uh, at the Constitutional Convention for two reasons. One was to preserve uh, the rights of small states in the face of large states like New York, Massachusetts, uh, and, and uh, you know, Pennsylvania would, be, would have been another one, Virginia would be another one, when the original colonies agreed to form a state. So the Electoral College, giving the extra weight to the Senate delegation was created uh, for that reason. The other reason it was created was that so slavery could continue as an institution in the, in the opposition, in the face of opposition by particularly the Northern states. So the Electoral College, there's nothing magic about the Electoral College. Uh, however, you needed a constitutional amendment to remove it. And of course, the minority has very substantial ability to kill a constitutional amendment. So the way around it is something called national pop your vote, which is I've been supportive of for a long time. And Vermont has ratified this, a number of other states have. Uh, and that says that in Vermont, the law is that whoever gets the majority of the vote nationally should get our electoral votes. So this prevents somebody like Trump or George W. Bush from getting fewer votes than the, their opponent and still acceding to the presidency. Um, and but you, in order to do that, you would have to have states controlling 270 electoral votes signed on to this. I think they're at 190 or something like that right now. New York has signed it. I don't remember what all the states are that signed it, but it adds up to 190 votes. When you get to 100 to 270, uh, then uh, this 270 votes would be controlled by the person who got the most votes, whether that particular state, uh, had, that person had the most votes or not. Uh, in 2016, you endorsed Hillary Clinton, and it's well known in these parts. You've had at times a challenging relationship with Bernie Sanders. How do you think Bernie has affected politics? Well, let me just say, I endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2014. I've known her forever. I helped. She was actually thinking of not running, and I helped to draft her. It was long before I had no idea Bernie was going to run for president at that time, and he certainly hadn't said anything about it. Uh, he, I don't think he got in until after a year after I endorsed Hillary. Um, so uh, I think Bernie's been, in, in, in general, a very positive influence. Um, he can be abrasive. He is a, a somewhat of a polarizing figure, but he said a lot of things that need to be said. And I think the reason he gets uh, elected in what I would call a center-left state, which is Vermont, is because he says things that have to be said that nobody else or not very many other people are saying. Uh, we, I mean, the, the country is run by billionaires and millionaires, as he says, and and their, and the absence of Citizens United. Uh, I mean, in, in the presence of Citizens United, 
it's in some ways the worst blow to our country that we've seen since Dred Scott. I mean, he's just what Roberts did was give license to billionaires to 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 run uh, political parties. I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe uh, for National Democratic Institute talking, talking to them about better governance. Hard to talk about better governance in Eastern Europe where the oligarchs run political parties, uh, where the Supreme Court of the United States, the supposed beacon of democracy around the world, allows oligarchs to run political parties. So when COVID is finally mostly passed, we're going to be looking at a crisis in healthcare in this country, um, mm-hmm. particularly if the Supreme Court, if Trump does succeed in striking down Obamacare, are we going to need some version of Medicare for all or yes. the national healthcare system? Yes, but uh, I've, I've never believed that you can tell voters what to do. You have to let them make their own decisions. Uh, this is the most libertarian country in the world. And I'm talking about both Democrats and Republicans. What we share is we hate to have government tell us what to do. Of course, the other side doesn't matter mind telling us what to do. But uh, I suppose we might tell them what to do in terms of putting on masks and stuff like that for trying to keep us all healthier. Um, so if you want, we would have had something pretty close to Medicare or Medicare for most if Joe Lieberman hadn't changed his vote uh, at the last minute and killed the public option. The public option essentially at that time allowed people who were having trouble with the private insurance market to sign up for Medicare no matter what age they were or, or down to 25. I think if you're over 25, you could stay in your parents' policy or whatever. I think three quarters of the American public would have voluntarily chosen to go on Medicare because it's a better system than, than private insurance. They don't have to take 20% off the top. They have a fixed fee schedule, so you don't get dinged for, for huge deductibles, or there are some, and it's just a better system. But you can't tell people that they can't have private insurance. That's never worked in any system in this world that I'm aware of. There are both private and, and public systems working in parallel. The most socialized system that I'm aware of in healthcare is the British system, where everybody works for the government. There is a private insurance market in Britain. So we, let's, my attitude is let's not do this from a theoretical level. Let's get something done and take into account the fact that we're human beings and there's going to be a significant part of the population that wants to do it their way. I'm in favor of that. Let them do it their way, but just don't let that stand in the way of everybody else getting something that's really good, which is in fact uh, a universal healthcare system. So speaking of the COVID pandemic, what do you think happens with it if Trump is reelected? And if Biden is elected, what's he going to need to do to bring it under control? Well, Biden just has to tell the truth, which he's much better at than Trump. Um, and that is that we actually have to behave like adults and listen to doctors. I mean, I'm very proud of this state and particularly Mark Levine, who I who was the chief resident the year after I finished my residency at uh, Mary Fletcher. Um, you know, we actually pay attention to people who know what they're talking about in Vermont. And, and it's, that's why we have the great numbers that we have. Um, I think Biden will be much more matter of fact. You won't have anybody suggesting bleach enemas or whatever it was that Trump suggested. I mean, this is kind of stuff. So who does this? The president of the United States. What the hell's the matter with this guy? And Biden is a normal person who I think is uh, probably not as um, uh, as leftish as I would like, but I think he has people's interests at heart. And that's, we don't have a president right now who gives a damn about anybody except himself. And I think like, I'd like that to change. So the anti-mask movement uh, is a reality. It has been politicized and uh, morphed or mutated 
into a political movement, which is hard to believe. Um, so this isn't going to go away. What does that mean? What do you, you know, you, you've traveled the states as the head of the DNC and as a candidate for president. Um, I kind of have a sense of, regardless of who's president, the states are going to kind of fracture, where you're going to have states where COVID is burning hot and killing a lot of people and other states that get it under control. You know, the people that you pay your penalty for doing that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the states in which the epidemic is out. Oh, look at Florida. They have a lunatic for a governor. He's a, oh, wel- welcoming and having 70,000 person crowds watch college football games. I, I know people, I'm not going to say who they are, but I know them well, who, who are up and coming young uh, business people who are moving. Who are they going to just had it? They like the weather and they like uh, raising their kids down there, but they're just not going to put up with this crap anymore. Um, what what 65-year-old in their right mind would move to Florida right now? They're at high risk. If they get it, there's a fairly good chance they'll die, especially given the medical care in Florida is the highest for-profit penetration of Medicare and the worst, medi- worst uh, I mean, of medical care and the worst uh, care in the, in the country, according to the New England Journal, um, which I think is, is correlated with the fact that they have the highest percentage of for-profit medicine, which is, frankly, doesn't deliver what not-for-profit medicine does. Um, so, uh, look, Florida's turning itself into a shipwreck. That's its own penalty. And presumably that governor is going to get voted out of office as a result of his misdeeds and terrible leadership. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation. Uh, my guest is former Governor Howard Dean. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Vermont politics. You endorsed David Zuckerman um, for governor. Do you think that he would make a better governor than Governor Scott? Here's why I endorsed David. First of all, I did grill him on vaccines. I am a physician. I believe in vaccines. Jay, look, I don't care what David did in 2015. He's, he's, his position today is the right position. We need to require vaccines for kids who are going to school other than those who are immunocompromised because other people pay the price. It's just like wearing masks. You, you can be as selfish as you want, but you don't have the right to use public facilities or private facilities if you're being selfish and endangering other people. That's the way it is. So I went over that with him. Here's why I endorsed him, with pleasure. Um, First, I think Phil's done a wonderful job on COVID. Nothing has happened on internet in the boondocks, which if we don't have, we're never going to have real jobs in in 14 or or, uh, 13 out of the 14 counties or or 12 out of them. And we need jobs in rural Vermont. You can't get that without the internet. There's been talk about it for years. We got to put some serious money into it. We can't do it on the cheap with private contractors and then take their... Uh, hit off the top as they have. Two, uh, imagine vetoing the climate change bill. Now you can argue about the details. This is a really serious problem. And an awful lot of people are going to be harmed by this. Nothing has been done. Um, And so if you start looking at issues, healthcare, what's been done in healthcare in the last five years? Nothing. Um, So while the immediate outlook and Phil's numbers are very high. And I think that's fair because he's done a great job with COVID. I'm thinking about the long term for this state. And there's a lot of talk about affordability and jobs, and I haven't seen any either. Hmm. A recent VPR poll showed that if a U.S. Senate race were held today, Phil Scott would edge out Pat Leahy, which has led to a lot of parlor talk about 2022. uh, And for the record, Senator Leahy has said nothing about running or not running, so that should be noted. Um, would you consider running for office again? 
A, I wouldn't, and B, that was a ridiculous poll. It was pathetic. And the sad thing is there were other polls in the field that were almost certainly more accurate, which didn't show any such thing. The problem with this poll, as the pollster was attacked for, I was embarrassed to find out that he was a Vermonter from Castleton, um, is that they, the sample was ridiculous. Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump in Vermont by 23 points. His sample, when asked for who did you vote for, showed Hillary Clinton beating Donald Trump in Vermont by seven points. Now, there is a phenomenon that says that where people correct their own version, they don't lie, but they remember. I mean, I, I, I can tell you that all the people, number of people who come up and said, I voted for you in 2004, I'd have been president if that was all true, but it wasn't. But they remember and they want to be nice and they change their memories. But it does not happen to the extent of 16%. So okay, that was a so, 16, so, polling, so the sample was so badly skewed by 16% towards the Republicans in a state which is heavily Democratic, that was just a ridiculous poll. And I just don't comment on that poll or anything about it. So polling aside, um, both uh, Leahy in 22, Bernie in, in 24 will both be up for re-election. It's certainly conceivable that one of them or both of them will- well, I have no interest in running for the Senate. That was your, uh, none, zero. Uh, I mean- I, I, for, for a while after I finished being governor, being, look, being the governor is the greatest job you could ever have. And it's, just, it's fantastic, especially a state like this, uh, where, you know, there were plenty of people that didn't vote for me. And that was fine because they were good, decent people who were thoughtful. And I never forgot them. I never didn't go up to Essex County and Orleans County where I didn't do traditionally well or Orange County because they're good people and they're good Vermonters. And it's, a, it's just a great privilege to live in a state like this. I have no interest in going to Washington. The more I see the Senate, the less I want to spend five minutes there. So no interest in running again for anything? Well, I didn't say that, but I, you know, I, I don't think so. Really, I don't think so. I really am a believer of getting young people into, the, into this race. I'm really excited about Molly Gray. Uh, there are other young people in their 30s that are thinking of running for higher office. I really want to uh, see the younger generation take over. I think my generation's got to step aside. We should be coaches. We, we know a lot because we've lived a long time. We need energy and we need a different direction for this state. We need somebody to take climate change seriously. We really do need to take the whole state uh, uh, seriously when we're trying to create jobs. Uh, look, I live in Chittenden County. I love living in Chittenden County. You cannot finance an entire state off the money that gets made in one county. We need decent jobs in places like Bennington and Orange County um, and Rutland. And that's only going to happen if you have serious broadband internet. And that means the state's going to have to put some money up. And, you know, Molly Gray's the only person talking about that in this entire race. Hmm. Um so just this week, uh, the bill was signed for a tax and regulate system for cannabis in Vermont. Um, <clears throat> you have evolved on this issue. You opposed pot legalization when you ran for president. But um, in recent years, you were on the advisory board for a Canadian cannabis company. Um, which I what, resigned. Which you resigned. Right. But I'll uh, tell you about that. We'll talk about this. Okay. Well, why'd you resign? Okay. So, okay. So, well, let's go back to the beginning. Now, I think, I don't think pot is a benign drug, but neither is alcohol. I, I came around to supporting legalization because in part, because my daughter's a public offender, a defender, and she sees a lot of clients every day who get busted for pot, sometimes which is placed on them by officers. 
and their lives are ruined. They're poor. They're African-American or other, or other people of color. They have bad education, and now they have a drug conviction. So from that point of view, it's a destroyer of low-income communities, including here in Vermont, where there are a lot of people with drug problems, and they have a hell of a time getting a job afterwards. So, so that was the first item that started to change my mind. The thing I didn't like about it was that a lot of the people were saying there were all these health attributes to pot, and I thought that was a backdoor. I don't like that disingenuous argument. Argue with me straight up, but don't give me this how healthy it all is, because it isn't. Uh, so I came around on legalization, partly because my daughter's a public defender and partly because I saw lives ruined uh, for, over a drug that's probably not as bad as alcohol. Um, the reason I resigned from the, uh, from the uh, cannabis company is that I came to the conclusion after thinking about it for quite a while um, that I shouldn't be on the board of, as a physician of any substance like that. I shouldn't be on a, a, a liquor company board. I shouldn't be on a cigarette company board. And therefore, I shouldn't be on a pot um, company board. I actually have been up to their Tilray's plant. It, they're fantastic. And, they, and I do think cannabis has some health aspects to it that, that work. And I think they've been much better researched since I opposed it when I was governor. Um, but I thought about it, you know, Tilray's in two businesses. One is uh, it's in the, uh, in the business of pain alleviation where other drugs don't work and so forth and so on. And, but the other business is it's in basically creating a leisure uh, occupation and such as alcohol or smoking. And I came to the conclusion that I shouldn't be on any board that did that, not because it's evil or horrible because people are going to drink and smoke and so forth, but just as a doctor, I shouldn't do that. So that's why I got off. So in our last uh, minute here, let's return to the presidential election. There's a lot of nightmare scenarios that have been floated uh, with Trump saying that he will not, uh, you know, do a peaceful transfer of power. How seriously do you take that? I think it's very serious. I don't think he's interested in that. This is not a guy. I mean, this is a bizarre person who has, I think, some serious psychiatric problems. Uh, but he is the president of the United States, and he has an attorney general who's basically decided he's going to be his consigliere. Um, so, yeah, I take it very seriously. I do think that the vast number of Americans uh, believe, and it's, actually this is true in the poll, you can see the polling over 70 some odd percent, which includes probably a number of Trump fans, believe that we should have a peaceful transition. Uh, if we don't, the United States is dead. And I think we will. Um, uh, you know, assuming there's not, I worry, worry much more about uh, Republican voter suppression than I do about a peaceful transition. I think if there's a clear winner, we're going to have a, a, a transition. Trump won't want it to be peaceful and he's going to get stuffed. And eventually some of his own party will find a backbone to stand up to him. But so far they haven't because Trump has the ability to go to any Republican and end his political career because he has enough loyalists in the Republican Party that'll, that'll vote that person out. He did it with Bob Corker, who was a very decent guy, as the former chairman of the Republican chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. He did it with Jeff Flake, who's certainly not my type of politician. He's very conservative. But Jeff said something that was reasonably principled and Trump didn't like it. And that was the end of Jeff Flake's career. And he did it with Adam Putnam and got this nutcase down there as the governor of Florida. Uh, Adam Putnam was a, a, a perfectly reasonable Republican. He was much more conservative than I am, but he was a decent guy who'd worked his way up. And Trump took offense at something he said. And then we get this backbench congressman who's a wacko telling everybody to take their masks off and go mix and mingle at 70,000 person stadiums. I mean, 
you know, this is insane. The Republicans have got to stand up to this and they haven't done it so far. Do you think that the, I mean, you worked as head of the DNC, you're intimately knowledgeable with um, the Republican party, you know, structures. Do you think the Republican party has been essentially taken over by Trump? I mean, Trump may go, but we'll be left with Trumpism. How long are, what are the implications of that? They're going to have a huge fight. I know a lot of Republicans who I like and respect, um, and they don't buy any of this. Uh, one of them lives in Stowe, Stuart Spencer. He's an amazing guy um, from born in Mississippi. And, uh, Stuart Stevens you're talking about. Stuart Stevens, I'm sorry. Stuart yeah. Spencer is a large consulting firm that sometimes puts out information about big companies. Sorry. Yes, yeah, Stuart Stevens. Um, and, you know, those guys, are, I'm, he's, he's a conservative. He's a true conservative. Um, but I respect people like that who, who have ideas. And, you know, I don't think I'm right all the time, although when I was governor, most people thought I thought that. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, but he's a smart guy and he listens and he has a streak of patriotism in, in him, which I admire. That wing of the Republican Party, I think, will be back, but they may have to blow up the Republican Party to do that because they do have you know, all these crazy conspiracy theorists and neo-Nazis and the people who wanted to kidnap the governor of Michigan. I mean, this stuff is insanity. You cannot have a country that does this kind of stuff and it's okay with people and it's okay with the president of the United States. We are in deep trouble if this guy gets reelected. Okay, well, on that note, uh, thank you, uh, (laughs) you. Governor Dean, for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. My pleasure.